Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast, and especially to our 450th episode. I'm Tyler Green. Apparently, after 449 shows, especially in the middle of a pandemic, you can still try something new, because we have something different today. In a moment, I'll be joined by my friend and colleague Jillian Steinhauer for our first-ever audience Q&A. Last week, we invited you all to send in your questions on Instagram, Twitter, and via email, and goodness did you respond with dozens upon dozens of questions. I picked about 10 of them. Jill and I are going to have a good time answering them. As ever, we would benefit from as many five-star reviews as you can submit to Apple Podcasts. So if you have a moment as you listen to the program or when you're done, please send five stars and a review our way. Jillian Steinhauer and I, after the break. Experience Nasher Windows, a new series at the Nasher Sculpture Center. Providing exhibition space to North Texas-based artists, Nasher Windows highlights site-specific work or work made for exhibitions impacted by the pandemic shutdown. New artists are featured weekly until the building reopens. On view now through the entrance windows on Flora Street, Nasher Windows is an accessible way to engage with art safely while social distancing, free to the public. Learn more and plan a visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. The center remains closed due to coronavirus, but you can wex from home with exclusive live streams, virtual screenings, curator suggestions, learning resources for parents, and much more. Go to wexarts.org for events such as conversation with curators Lucy Zimmerman and Jennifer Lang and artist Stanya Khan. You'll also find a video tour of LaToya Ruby Frazier's The Last Cruise, with senior curator Michael Goodson and a collection of Modern Art Notes conversations with artists who've shown at the WEX. It's all at wexarts.org. Explore art from home. Explore art from home with Getty. Visit online exhibitions such as Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, and Bauhaus, Building the New Artist. Watch videos about art making and conservation, as well as hundreds of art history talks. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. And listen to interviews with artists, writers, curators, and scholars to hear about their current projects and concerns. Learn more at getty.edu art. And we're back. Jillian Steinhauer, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. How are you doing? I find that a very difficult question to answer these days, but all things considered, I am doing all right. I am healthy. I have a roof over my head. I have work. So I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged. I'm good. Those are things I keep coming back to as well, even if some of the conditions of the present inevitably focus us on what isn't okay. But yeah, I try to focus on on what works. You know, you and I are both in cities, you in New York, me in Los Angeles, that are pretty much art closed. Uh, you know, museums here are closed galleries as we're taping this on Monday, June 15th. There are a few commercial galleries in Los Angeles that are doing some by appointment viewing, but I strongly suspect those are for people with net worths higher than mine. So in terms of what you do as a critic, how have you adjusted your thinking or what you read or look at or whatever? How have you adjusted to a pandemic era with with everything closed? 
You know, I feel like I'm still kind of figuring out this adjustment. I mean, I've obviously been looking at art online more. I mean, the I write these little sort of micro reviews for the New York Times galleries column. And when the pandemic started, that went virtual. So I have been writing these little reviews based on, you know, seeing art online. But, you know, it just doesn't feel the same. It doesn't really work for me in the same way. I know there's a lot of privilege bound up in even being able to go to art spaces and feel comfortable there. So I acknowledge that for sure. But I have found myself definitely more drawn to video, to photo, to net art, like things that feel much more at home on the internet. I just don't find looking at paintings very satisfying online. So I've been trying to keep up with, you know, somewhat with virtual shows in that way. But I honestly, I've just been seeing less art as a critic. I mean, I was seeing so much before in my daily life and I kind of can't commit to doing that same level of viewing online. It just doesn't really work for my brain. No, it's, it's not, it's not seeing art. It's seeing JPEGs, which is not a remotely comparable experience. You know, when, whenever the pandemic declines and recedes, everybody with, with two cents of sense is going to laugh at all of the people in the art world who believed in online viewing rooms as being not just websites or not just JPEGs on a website. I mean, I definitely see some people raise questions about, you know, accessibility and inclusivity and thinking about how museums offer things virtually and galleries, you know, for folks who maybe can't go to spaces or can't spend time in them for folks with disabilities. So I think those conversations are important. But yeah, I mean, it's just my attention span when I'm looking at my computer, when I'm looking at the internet is so, and the quality of my attention, there is just, they're so different than when I'm in a, an art space that even if I wanted to look at more art online, I'm just not convinced I, I would be able to. It's the difference between looking at art and looking at a JPEG. I mean, you know, it's just not the one thing that had, you know, you mentioned video and media work. I mean, that, that has worked really well. You know, I found that that experience streamed into my laptop or, or to my TV or whatever works pretty well. Yeah, I agree, actually. And in some way, sometimes it's even better because in a museum, maybe I'm rushing to get through a show or in a gallery, I have to go to the next gallery. And at home, it's m much easier for me to actually give my full attention to a longer video. So that has been nice. Like, like you, I'm in a fairly privileged position where if, when I want to see, you know, the latest Shauna Comfra or, 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 or whomever, I can just email a gallery and, and, and get the link to an online screener. And maybe in part because of that, and because I've been doing that for 15 or 20 years, when I see video at a museum or in a gallery, and I don't do a lot of galleries anymore, I just, I mean, you try getting around LA. I'm, I'm, I'm hypersensitive to, to, to sound bleed. And there are other ways to experience what the artist intended. Because, you know, I, I think some museums, you know, the Broad for the Shereen Shot Show comes to mind do a pretty good job with building space for video, but it's really expensive. It doesn't happen very often and it's still not perfect. So the one thing also I wanted to just that came to my mind on this question of how I've been sort of adapting is, you know, I've been writing less criticism. I've been doing more reporting because I really do. I like to do both and it often comes and goes in waves. Like in the before times, I would say I would, you know, write a bunch of criticism and then, you know, miss having conversations with people. So I'd go do a bunch of reporting and then kind of swing back. But since the pandemic began, I have, I, I'm pretty sure I've done more reporting than criticism 
you know, for all of these reasons and also maybe just wanting to connect with people and talk and also because there's so much going on that there's a lot to report on. <laughs> there is a lot going on and we're going to get to listener Q&A the first time in 450 episodes of the Man Podcast. We, we've been derelict. I've been derelict. But the last thing I wanted to ask before we kind of pivot into what listeners sent and and listeners did did really well. So like me, you come from a particular uh, developed socio-political point of view. How do you organize your critical work, what you choose to write about, for example, around those socio-political convictions? You know, I think it's it's honestly something that I feel I'm still, it's sort of always in process. I'm always figuring it out. And especially as a freelancer, which I've, I've been freelancing for the last two and a half years, it's a, it's very different than when I was working full-time at, at Hyperallergic. This is a problem with gig criticism. Let me just foreground that. Yeah. Totally. So there's like so many factors at play in what I'm covering. It's like personal interest. It's who else might be covering it for the publications that I often write for. It's, you know, has this person been written about a lot? What In what way have theirs wor- has their work been written about a lot? Has this person never had any coverage? Are they deserving of coverage? You know, it's sort of all of these things. Am I the best person to write about this work? Because often there's work I'm interested in, but I don't feel like I have enough of the knowledge and the background, and maybe I don't have enough time to do all that research. As I go on in this field, I, I've always been aware of this, but I've been trying even more in recent years to think about how I use my voice and the power that I have as a white critic writing for some very high profile places. So yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is really answering the question, but it's like, I'm sort of trying to always take into consideration all these different factors. I feel like it plays out a lot with, you know, like I've already mentioned gallery reviews in the times, but you know, that's really a nice space where they're very short and I have a lot of autonomy over what I get to review there. And so it can be a really nice way to highlight an artist for the first time in the times or write about someone's solo show that like they haven't gotten much attention before. And I really think it's deserving or even a gallery that's never been covered before because they show certain types of work and they're off the radar. So that's like one way I do it. But yeah, I I think, yeah, it's sort of, like I said, a combination of all of those factors of, of thinking about what can I bring to this conversation? How can I engage with this work? Is it Am I going to say something that hasn't been said or bring a different perspective? Should I be passing on this opportunity to a writer of color instead? You know, there's all these different sort of questions going on in my brain at any given time. But a lot of it ultimately is, you know, my own taste and my own desires to write about certain work. That stuff still very much governs what I'm covering. Well, let's let's transition into the Q&A. This is pretty cool. You know, uh, many of my favorite sports podcasts do this, and I always enjoy it and, and learn new things. And I have no idea why in 450 episodes of, of this program, just haven't done it. But thank you, Jill, for being willing to be the guinea pig and take this on with me. So a week ago, Jill and I asked, or I asked on the show listeners, and Jill and I both asked on social media for y'all to send in questions. We got dozens of them. A number of the questions, multiple people asked. And so we picked one version of, of, of those questions. Some others were just asked by a single person. And we're going to have a good time going through them. I I don't know how specific on current events we're going to get in our answers. So I'll just say one more time that we're taping on the afternoon and evening of June 15th. First one. Uh, This one comes from Renee. And it's (laughs) probably my favorite question of the week. Where have white artists been? Did Dana Schutz scare them off? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I wish I could talk to Renee because I, I sort of want to ask a bit more about specifics. By which I mean, 
there are different ways to show up. And I think, I think the question of where white artists has been relates to the question of where white people have been, right? I mean, to me, it's like a, a larger question of the inaction of white people to confront white supremacy. So white artists are just one segment of that. But the question, the Dana Schutz thing, I think is really salient because a lot of the conversation around that painting and, and Dana Schutz's work, you know, making the painting of Emmett Till was about, it's sort of a question of where we direct our energy, right? Like white people, and I very much include myself when I talk about white people, have a tendency to think that race is a problem or is an issue for other people, people of color to deal with and solve, right? So we direct our energy towards people of color when we're thinking about race rather than like directing the energy sort of inwards and on our, reflecting on ourselves. And that was a lot of the critique that really resonated with me about the Dana Schutz painting was that she was painting this work of Emmett Till rather than thinking about the ways whiteness operated in that situation, his actual lynching and the white woman who accused him of raping her. So yes, so I think to get back to the question, white artists, I think, have not been rising to that challenge for a very, very long time. I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but I think that that's something white artists, the work that white artists are not doing a good job of. And writers too. I mean, again, I include myself. I mean, I definitely have seen some plenty of white artists now fundraising on Instagram or talking about their donations. Like I think people are out there protesting and doing and raising money and doing these things now. So I think in that sense, there are a lot of white artists who are showing up in solidarity but I do think that there's still so much work that white people are are, are terrible and not at and not doing of examining our own whiteness and the, all the ways it benefits us. And that's the work that I think is still not being done that much in the art world by not just white artists, but, you know, white museum staffers and white gallerists and all those things. I agree with, you know, almost all of that. I mean, I, I, I think white artists are overwhelmingly more likely to write a check than they are to address whiteness or white racism or the white construction of systems in their work. One of the things I've been thinking about in the last week or two is one of the oh, few 20th century white artists to foreground white racism in his work would be having a major retrospective at the National Gallery of Art right now were it not for the pandemic, and that's Philip Guston. And, and I always think about how I, when I was taught or when I was learning Philip Guston, his address of racism was like the seventh thing that was discussed in the context of his work. You know, his how he got there and why was was something that at least white people didn't talk a lot about. You know, that, that we don't have likely dates for that show and where it surfaces yet. I, you know, consider this a slightly informed guess. Guess it was supposed to open at the National Gallery, and now I think it will end at the National Gallery. The question of of the Dana Schutz enormous screw up scaring them. So I like how that's both a joke and and not a joke. But let's be real about this: Dana Schutz's career hasn't been hurt one bit, and there hasn't been any kind of meaningful accountability or moment of reckoning for anyone involved in that train wreck. Not at the Whitney, unless, of course, there's something of, of, of which I'm unaware, which is entirely possible, and certainly not for the artist. So that went for white people how it's always gone for white people. Well, and this is, I think, part of the problem is that white people are afraid of taking risks because they're not 
asked to. They're not made to. You can live so comfortably in a very safe like bubble of whiteness. And so being asked to put something on the line to risk something, to maybe risk fucking up. Oh, I don't know if I can curse on the show, but <laughs> to, to risk making a mistake, to actually, you know, go out on that limb. I, and I just want to I want to I want to jump in and say I am not granting her risk. I don't think she took a risk. She just fucked up. Totally. No, I agree. Sorry. What I meant, though, is that like I, I very much agree more. What I mean is that I think white people are afraid to take on whiteness. And that's because they're so we're just like we're just we live in these like little comfortable bubbles and we're afraid of, of risking anything to call out to examine your own participation in white supremacy you know, takes not just like self-examination, but they're, you know, you're, you're like, you're puncturing the bubble a little bit of your own privilege and your own benefiting from the system. And I think white people are, are horrible at that. So I feel like that's part of it. One other thing, I think that while white artists have suffered from all of the lack of addresses we've been talking about, I think white art historians and white curators have, have done better. I don't know why that is, but, you know, I'm sure we can both name without really working very hard, you know, half a dozen art historians and curators who in just the last couple of years have oriented their work, the bulk, you know, the, the meat of their work outside their own experiences and outside their own power structures. You know, I, I suspect that, you know, one reason for that is because there are institutions, whether they're universities or art museums or funders who support the work of historians and curators in a way that artists are not supported by present systems. Artists, you know, there is, artists are, in the United States, art making is a market, overwhelmingly a market supported system. And so there's support, financial and institutional, with all that goes along with that, such as healthcare, for the, for historians and curators who work within institutions that there is not for artists. Definitely. I think also, if I can add one more thing, I think it's interesting to think, too, about what goes on or what doesn't go on that we don't see. So, you know, there's the question of white artists making work about race and white supremacy and these questions. But I do wonder what acts of solidarity do and can look like beyond art, right, beyond the actual work. So and maybe also beyond like public fundraising. But, you know, they're very well. There probably are ways in which like white artists are supporting artists of color behind the scenes. There are also probably plenty of ways that they're not. But, you know, the things that we don't see of like, what it, what would meaningful solidarity look like? I mean, is it sharing opportunities for shows? Is it speaking out against an institution if they treat your fellow artist badly? Like, these are all sort of questions that, you know, I don't know the answers, but I think there are other ways to do this work. And I'd be curious to know more of how that looks. Yeah. And of course, if artists are making stuff and not showing it, comma, nothing's being shown right now, comma, we, we wouldn't know. And maybe there's an appropriateness to white artists receding from showing that work in this particular moment in certain contexts. Next one. Over the last couple weeks, museums that have made merely faint comments about addressing racism have been clobbered, um, including by their own staffs. And, and, you know, examples here um, are SFMOMA and Philadelphia and Palm Springs um, and probably others, but those are the first three that, that came to my mind. What should those institutions actually do? I can take this one first because I've written about this kind of stuff for years. Institutions, especially art museums, especially the larger art museums, should look at their boards first and should look at their hiring practices as well. There might not be more than a couple 
out of the top 100, largest 100 by budget American art museums that have boards that reflect the diversity of their communities. The Met, for example, the Met has um, roughly a 35-person board, has four or five black people on its board. New York City's demographics are, you know, otherwise. You know, a quarter of New York City is black and 30-ish percent is Latinx. But boards and hiring practices are big ones. Promotion practices are another. It is not okay if you have 20% of your staff is black, but those tend to be entirely entry-level jobs in, you know, communications and visitor services, which is, I think, when, when institutions cite stats, that's often who they're citing. And, and then, you know, I think that in some ways is the easy part. I think a lot of institutions put their institutional failures on the shoulders of artists. They uh, bring in an artist, say a black artist or, or an Asian American artist, and they say, you, you and your otherhood address this that we as an institution have failed to meaningfully address ourselves. And then they stand back and they being the institution then stands back and feels like it has done it. Artists are not fig leaves and they are not a replacement for institutional and internal processes. The question of an institution's responsibility to its community is not only about showing non-white artists and non-male artists. It is about ensuring that broad investigations happen within projects that are projects that mostly feature white artists, say around 19th century American painting, for example. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that. I would also add two things that have come to mind. One is, I think, I mean, you touched on this, but I think also like museums need to think about priorities and where money goes. Like a lot of beyond like, you know, visitor services and security, which is where you see a lot of people of color on staff at museums. There's also a lot of people, let's say in education, doing education work and they're like working on contracts and now they have no work because of the pandemic. Right. But the directors of museums are still making tons of money. So I think also even beyond staff questions, the way these places engage with contract workers, with freelancers, the way they pay and compensate for different types of labor, all that stuff really needs to be overhauled and analyzed. Yeah. And can I jump in on that for just a second? This gets to a really important subject, and that is the corporatization of the nonprofit sphere. You know, people who serve on many of the people who serve on nonprofit boards come from the corporation world or, or various other parts of the business world, and they migrate into, we're seeing this in Philadelphia right now, for example, they migrate into the nonprofit sphere practices from the corporate sphere, practices which are already questionable within the corporate sphere, but certainly don't fit within, within the nonprofit sector. And what you just described is, is just the perfect example of that. Yeah, no, definitely. And the other point I was going to raise, which I think is really a smart one, and I, this comes, so Thomas Lacks, who is a curator at MoMA, posted this on Instagram already two weeks ago. When protests were starting and we were, you know, conversations about police brutality, this latest wave were happening, he posted about more tangible things that museums can do, right? So he had said, like, art can't basically do all of this work but museums can make sure that they are not working with their local police departments. And he also mentioned that like museums in New York that are part of the cultural institutions group can maybe lobby or pressure the mayor or the city council to decrease the police budget. So, you know, even thinking beyond 
museums looking internally, which is definitely work they have to do, but also thinking about how they can have, they can take concrete action. I mean, the Walker got a lot of attention, the Walker Art Center for cutting ties with the Minneapolis PD. As it turns out, it doesn't sound like they were, they were using them for like one event a year or something. But even if it's somewhat symbolic, I think maybe in some ways we also have to move beyond the idea that museums only exist in their own little field and sphere and and remember that they are connected to at least in places like New York they're very much connected to the rest of the city and the operations of the city and are there ways that they can wield that power so I thought that was a super smart point from Thomas we'll have a link to that post on uh, the show page on on manpodcast.com I want to acknowledge a couple of museums that have been doing self-examination for years now that have been considering their institutional practices and updating them in response to those examinations. For example, there's the Virginia MFA in Richmond, which going back to 2005, 2006, curators there on their own, John Ravenall, for example, the, the modern and contemporary curator there, began prioritizing people whose work the Virginia MFA had not collected, which is a polite way of saying he recognized that the department into which he'd been hired had pretty much only been acquiring the work of white men. And so he really focused his work on everybody else. And then the museum, as the years went by, under, under its, especially under its current director, Alex Nyergis, worked from the top down, from its board down, to consider ways in which they weren't reflecting the fullness of Virginia life and experience. So they've added people of color to their board there. Right now they have a... a Show, I haven't seen the show, but the catalog for for the exhibition, the Kamoingi show, is, is absolutely terrific. Yeah, and that's they actually have a good website for that, too, by the way. Terrific website, terrific website. Also for the archive, which they acquired, which, which effectively birthed the show, which effectively motivated the show. In some ways, the m- most long-lasting, expensive commitment an institution can make is to an archive, because you, when you when you acquire an archive, you are choosing to take care of it in perpetuity with all with all that connotes from from cost to who you welcome into your institution to study it and the cost related to that and the, the staffing commitments related to that you know there's the hammer you know the gardener this season has a terrific show again i haven't seen it i've read the catalog called boston's apollo thomas mckellar and john singer Sargent examining the relationship between Sargent and a really important model who is literally visible all over Boston <laughs> at the BPL, at the, at the MFA, and in the uh, Gardner's own collection. So there are institutions that have begun various self-examinations. There are also institutions that are way behind, waving at SFMOMA. And, and just the last thing I'll, 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 I'll point out is that if you, you are an art museum and you have decided the way of addressing your failings of the past is to do it around the exhibition of private collections instead of around the work done by artists, curators, and art historians. You're doing no more than propping up an extant power system. You know, the 30 Americans exhibition is exhibit A. The the idea that in the 21st century that 30 artists can be deemed important by an institution because their work is owned by certain white collectors uh, remains abhorrent to me. Absolutely. Uh, next question comes from somebody who did not leave a name, but it's uh, a fun question to think about. 
Will art museums race to organize Black Lives Matter exhibitions? And if they do, what will they look like? In some ways, hasn't this happened before? I think we have been seeing, I mean, I think certainly this is somewhere artists are. Artists have, especially black artists, have been examining state condoned or extrajudicial violence in their work for, for a number of years now. We have not, though, had a specific Black Lives Matter exhibition in the way that, say, Peter Ely at MoMA PS1 did did September 11th. That was the title of the show in, in 2011. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a really interesting question. I feel uh, a little bit like sort of inequipped to answer it because I just don't just don't know. I mean, I guess I'm thinking my most recent reference point to something somewhat similar might be the recent show at PS1 about the Gulf Wars, just in terms of, you know, an art show organized around a historical moment. There were plenty of critiques of that show, but I, I really enjoyed it. I feel like I learned so much. So, you know, I could see it being done well, but I, oh, I don't know. I find this to be, I mean, it's a great question, but it's really hard. I mean, obviously there's the opportunity, there's the chance that there'll be a lot of like hollow gestures or, you know, kind of uh, superficial exhibitions. What a more meaningful one would look like, I think is a great question. You know, I can imagine in a, an institutional art world trying to bounce back from the pandemic, there being a meeting at a major museum in which somebody says, well, you know, we can raise money for that show because they can. <laughs> but see this, I feel like this is where it gets really tricky, right? Because then I feel like questions questions of tokenism and exploiting the movement really come up for me there. Like, is it being done rigorously? Is it being done in a way that actually benefits black communities and black people? Or is it just being done in a way where a bunch of black superstar artists are kind of held up as these paradigms? So yeah, I mean, I think, yes, I think you're right, but I would be wary. I, I went back in the old Modern Art Notes archives and looked up something. So, so Ann Temkin and I, who, Ann Temkin, who is now the chief curator of painting and sculpture at MoMA, and I had called Anne 13 years ago in 2007 to ask her kind of a version of this question around 9-11. So this was many years before Peter Ely, probably even before Peter Ely had been hired at, at MoMA PS1. And this is what Anne said. Quote, I didn't consider doing it, it being a 9-11 show. And I think that reflects my point of view that the art comes first and that it's not a subject that will make art great or not. What I'm interested in is art that is great as great, not art that is aspiring to be great on the basis of the issue that it addresses. So for me to do a show about that would be less art-centric than topic-centric. That's something that I'm not against, but it wouldn't be something I would personally do. I'm not surprised that it hasn't happened yet because most people do share the feeling, or most artists would share the feeling, that the primary motivation for whatever the work of art comes to be has to be a whole lot more profound and complicated than something you could sum up as a response to an historical event. It's just too simple somehow to hang a whole bunch of work of art on that hook. And so I don't mean to, I mean, I wonder if, you know, maybe I should have called Anne this morning and asked if she still thinks that. I think she raises lots of good points, but I think also there are parts of what she said 13 years ago that I think she would maybe agree are a little bit quaint. Yeah, I mean, like I would say, again, the PS1 show to me would be a kind of rebuttal to that because it, it was based around historical events, series of events, and I thought it was really well done and not, you know, I thought it was very complicated and there was no, there was no like sort of single crusading narrative through it. So I think it can be done, but I guess, I mean, the larger thing that sort of bugs me is I think what this moment of reckoning is partly about is, is the fact that representation isn't enough. I mean, it's been this sort of band aid for many, many, many years. It's like the one sort of 
what maybe the one demand from like the 60s that has that, that museums have actually acted on is showing more artists of color showing more black artists but i mean there's still more work to be done in that department but at the end of the day like the museum structures themselves haven't really changed that much so you know i'm not like against the idea of black lives matter show but i think th- to me, like the reckoning just needs to be deeper than an exhibition can be. I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, no, I, I think that's 100 percent true. I think the reckoning needs to be I mean, it needs to start at boards and continue from there. I was going to say that maybe if the reckoning is deeper then maybe the show that would result would be a lot better. You know, if you are a major art museum and on your 35 person board, you don't have a couple of art historians and a couple of artists. What are you thinking? I mean, nonprofit boards outside the art world generally include experts in the field that nonprofit addresses. And yet, at say, for example, the Met, you know, there's not an art historian on that board. There's not an artist on that board. You know, if you only have like one artist on your board and, and 35 fat cats, you know, that's its own recipe for failure. But when you talk about structural address, that that's crucial and starts at the toppest. I guess one more point I would make, I mean, to sort of walk it back a little for myself, just thinking about my own work recently, since the pandemic began, the New York Times has been running this column. Each week, a critic writes, like, chooses five Instagram accounts to follow, art-related Instagram accounts. And last week, I did write about Black Lives Matter, actually. And I, I did actually try to think about what some visual manifestations of Black Lives Matter are, what they look like. And it was an interesting exercise. And I hope I did an okay job. I mean, you know, that's up to the readers. But so I think that there are, in that sense, yeah, I mean, you know, there are ways to tackle it. And I I think it would have to involve so much more than just art that is literally responding to this moment and be much broader than just like uh, response art, which I think is great. I mean, I'm I'm all for like protest art and response art, but I think you need, you would, a good show would need to think much more deeply about what it really means to say Black Lives Matter. What does that look like? in artistic terms. And that can mean so many different things. I, 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 yeah, 100%. You know, I think a Black Lives Matter exhibition is probably a bad idea for the reasons you just outlined. It's not specific enough. But at the same time, an exhibition that addressed police violence over the last decade, I mean, boy, there's been a lot of art made. There could be very good shows there. But there also could be very good shows, you know, American artists going back into the 19th century have a addressed the subject of violence in America and particularly violence done to black people in America. And a broader historical show, one that includes Jacob Lawrence's address in um, the middle of the 20th century or Eastman Johnson's address in the 19th century, could present a meaningful history that would confront visitors with a specific reckoning as presented through the ideas of artists be hard to do, but there are plenty of people out there capable of doing it. But in a way, I feel like it's interesting. Like, I mean, I, I guess maybe I'm being redundant, but like, it's funny when I think about institutions doing this kind of show, I mean, I just keep coming back to what main major art museum could do this show in the right way. Like you, like, well, I guess what I mean is these places are such white institutions that to do a Black Lives Matter show I think in a way that really works, you need you need black voices, right? So, I mean, of course, there are black curators at a lot of these places. There are people, but you know, just thinking about the even context the show that show would be in, and the decision making, and the sort of people at the top of the chain at those institutions, 
it's sort of a question to me of how that would that would even play out. No, it's a totally fair question. It's part of, yeah, no, I think that's part of why what the show or shows would be is an important question. I mean, what, you know, a question I've thought a lot about because it kind of touches on, on non-podcast work I do is an absence. And that is, why is it in pre-1861 America, was there major abolitionist poetry? Why was there, why were there major abolitionist novels? And you know, and why and why was it American painters totally skipped the subject? You know, this is this is a time in American history when when poets and painters were were thick as thieves. You know, figures like Thomas Starr King in 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 New England were a key bridge between artists and transcendentalist thinkers, both first and second generation transcendentalist thinkers. Why is it that that Whittier and Longfellow were so famous and infamous for being abolitionist poets? That in a political speech to reference abolitionist poets, you know, was a laugh line. It was just kind of a wink and a nod and an eye roll. And yet painters totally skip out on the subject. And, you know, it's easier to address an absence in a book than it is in an exhibition because an an exhibition requires objects and a book can talk about the ideas and evidence that aren't uh, art objects in a a more specific way. You know, I I, I think it's important to, to, to point out these are not just questions in art in the last 30 or 40 years. And that institutions that think of them that way are are in trouble, which actually, uh, without my intending, the segue brings us to, to our next question, which comes from Lisa Small, who's a curator at the Brooklyn Museum. How can museum galleries of historical European art rethink their narratives? Whew, yeah, this is such a good question. It's definitely not my strong suit. <laughs> I think this is one of the hardest questions, not just that we got, but that museums should themselves be considering. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this feels definitely out of my wheelhouse, but there's a way in which European collections are sort of, in many places, they're like the centerpiece, right? They're they're sort of positioned as being so important to the museum. Physically. Yeah, exactly. And they do foreground white artists, for sure. And they often also have like racist depictions, orientalist depictions within them. So I feel like I would think part of it is about kind of destabilizing that. Like maybe maybe you can use wall text to dig into some of the meanings of some of the works that are on view, or maybe you shake up the idea of what is European. I think it's defined as being very white and Christian, but you know that's not completely the case. So I don't know. Could you bring objects from different departments in to sort of create these more cross-cultural dialogues? I, I think it's one of the hardest questions that museum, and and, and indeed many museums have been working on this question, right? I mean, yes, wall texts should be fully considered. And it's certainly okay, if not important, to point out to your audience what pictures are not showing, what they are leaving out, what artists have chosen not to include. And I'm glad Lisa asked about collection galleries, or at least kind of hinted at collection galleries, because exhibitions, particularly of European art, are seven-figure exceptions, right? I mean, they are, it's, you can do a lot with you know, a million-dollar exhibition. It, it's harder to do these things within collection galleries. You know, certainly, this goes for curators and institutions. Both don't assume or take for granted the centrality of whiteness, find ways to interrogate what's not there as much as what is there. One, one way to do that is maybe a small one or two gallery show around a single artwork that's in your collection. And maybe you address that individual artwork and how it was created and why it was created or where it was 
created to represent using more than art to support and pose that interrogation, you know, say using visual culture material. Mind you, this doesn't work very well the other way around. You can't credibly or legibly use art to support visual culture material because, you know, art, you're, you're an art museum, not a visual culture repository necessarily, although you may have supporting visual cultural material in your library collections and such. But, but you know, that I love, and there are not enough of them, but I love small exhibitions that investigate, you know, single or two artworks in a collection. I, I think one reason curators have long been kind of disinterested in that approach is because curators make their bones often by, you know, writing major scholarly works that go along with their exhibitions that present their ideas and their research. And it's a $65 book in the store, and it's going to live on in libraries forever and establish them as experts on a given subject. And I'm not, you know, <laughs> immune. I mean, I certainly understand that. But I, I, I think that museums have really failed to take advantage of how technology makes it possible to do that and to disseminate that scholarship digitally around non-million dollar exhibitions, around much smaller presentations. You know, a place like Cleveland, which has an A++ digital team, you know, if you did a two-gallery exhibition of a painting or paintings there, you could produce, you know, 64, 96-page Kindle and PDF catalog that had the same quality of investigation and writing in it and images within it that the tombstone catalog typically has. And it would be less expensive and could be more broadly distributed, including to schools, colleges, and universities for free. And so I think there are ways that some of the other issues regarding privileged access to the institution here could be addressed with, you know, in these ways. I mean, one thing that came to mind just now as we were talking, which is definitely relevant, you know, again, this isn't necessarily how you can rehang a collection, but Denise Morell's show, uh, Posing Modernity at the Wallach Art Gallery, was a pretty incredible example of, you know, looking at European white art through a completely different lens, right? So the show was focused on black models of that time. And it was such a brilliant way to flip the switch and to talk about these people who are sort of in the paintings, but we don't focus on who they were or their relationships to the artists who we valorize. So I think that's a really interesting model for trying to rethink maybe how we look at European art collections. And also just trying trying things, right? Like, I feel like there are some museums that are trying different things, and I don't know if they're enough or they go all the way, but it's just see what works, right? Like the Rijksmuseum removed racist terms from their artwork descriptions and titles. There was a museum, I forget which one, maybe like Worcester? It was somewhere near Boston where they added to wall labels to talk about like portraits of people who were slave owners. I believe Harvard did that. Right, like bringing those histories to light in the context for a painting so that you're not just looking at the sort of heroic figure, but you're actually thinking about who they were. So I feel like even just trying interventions like that is, is a good step. Denise's show, Denise was on the podcast to talk about that show, of course, was terrific, but of course, wildly expensive. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> I enjoyed that show and I got a lot out of that show, but I hope the copycats it spawns take the breadth of its investigation as a jumping off point and that we don't get 17 shows investigating models and their biographies. I think that's fair, but I think it's, I think what, it was just notable because 
at least, I mean, I'm younger than you are, and I've definitely seen fewer museum shows than you have or read fewer catalogs. But to me, it just felt so notable for taking this art, a lot of which I had, even if I hadn't seen it in person, I'd seen pictures, you know, just the art that we sort of think we know about, we think we know the narratives, and really looking at it through a different lens. No, it was a meaningful investigation of, of social history using great art. And that has happened more in recent years. Simon Kelly's show at the St. Louis Art Museum looking at the millinery trade and how it was represented in art and bringing that investigation together with kind of an investigation of what that trade did meant signified for labor and migration within 19th century France. I mean, like, I really enjoyed that show and, and really enjoyed talking with Simon about it. We That was on the podcast, too. But I hope that not everybody does the same show, right? <laughs> and, then, and then just one last thing. Dear art museums, you can't just hire Titus Kafar and consider it done. You know, again, again, do not do not make individual artists do your work for you. And that's definitely, I think, been a thing with European collections. I feel like there are so many interventions. I mean, those are great. They're exciting. But like, that's not the same as scholarship on the part of the museum and a real effort to break down those presentations and rethink them. Next question is phrased as an address of New York City, but it could certainly go for other cities, most especially Los Angeles. The questioner, William, writes, today New York City is 30% Latinx, 25% Black, and 12% Asian. The largest Latinx groups in New York City and the tri-state region by far are Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. Why are New York City art museums, galleries, and publications not reflecting that? And before we answer it, let me note his date is a smidge off. According to the latest data from the Census Bureau, which is from the 2018 American Community Survey, New York City is 43% white, 30% Latinx, 24% black, and 14% Asian. And of course, the metro area beyond the boroughs is considerably whiter. I mean, you know, my most sort of basic gut level answer is what we've been talking about the most of this time, which is that museums are very white institutions. So that's a big part of it. And their hiring pool is whiter and blacker than it is Latinx. The places art museum from which art museums hire staff are not cranking out Latinx art historians at the rate they're cranking out white art historians. And I hear when I talk to art museums, them point this out over and over and over again. And they're not wrong, right? But then the next question is, okay, you know that. What are you doing about it? If it's important enough to you that you know that, what partnerships are you making with universities in your state or in your region to address that? Even if it's just in turn, you know, even if it's the first step of creating paid internships for undergrads on up from there, just pointing and saying, we can't because is not sufficient. I think that there is a way in which sometimes in the U.S., discussions about race and ethnicity get reduced to black and white, like literally black and white. And so every other ethnicity gets kind of left out of the conversation. And then we have this term, people of color, that just kind of lumps them all together. And again, it sort of feels a bit like museums are so white and they have started to let black people in. And that's like sort of feels like as far as they've been able to go so far. Like, <laughs> like all these other people from other communities and other ethnicities, I feel like there's still museums are not making room for them. They're not welcoming them. They're not looking to those communities. I think that's a little truer in New York than it is in other parts of the country. 
Definitely. I mean, it seems even you can definitely speak to L.A. better, but I would think it's definitely a different situation than in L.A. And, and San Diego, for that matter. I mean, and, and in other places. I mean, you know, to me, and I've been saying this for, for a lot of years, the most interesting part of the art historical field is, broadly speaking, the art of colonial Spain, whether that's Spanish art or art made in, in the New World in the wake of and an engagement with Spain coming to South America, Central America, and the Western United States. Those exhibitions, when LACMA has done them, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art is by, you know, a ridiculous margin, <laughs> the leader in those those exhibitions, thanks to Alona Katsu, who's a superstar as curators get. You know, those are those are huge shows for LACMA, you know, without knowing, I'm not exactly on intimate terms with LACMA at the moment, you know, without knowing, I would guess LACMA would love to have twice as many of those shows. And and San Diego did a very broad Spanish colonial show. So not just art made in, in modern day Peru or modern day Mexico, but art also made in then and modern day Spain that was a critical and audience hit. But you get out of Texas and California and that changes a lot. I mean, one thing that also comes up for me with this question, and again, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, so I don't want to speak out of turn, but I wrote a piece last year about El Museo del Barrio, and some of what came up in the interviews and reporting I did for that story were also this, it almost seems like a class divide in terms of how the mainstream, sort of white mainstream views Latin American art versus Latinx art. And there's a lot of struggle over the identity of El Museo del Barrio around this exact question, because a lot of local communities, Latinx communities, Puerto Rican communities, Dominican members of the community. I mean, El Museo de Barrio was founded for them. It was supposed to be their institution. And the museum became, over time, more broadly focused on Latin American art as well, which has, for some reason, has more cachet. You know, there's Latin American collections in the mainstream white art world museums. There's, there's Latin American sales. Like, there's sort of this it fits into this sort of elite model more. And I don't know the reasons for that, but there is this sort of internal division or, or battle over who gets represented, even within an institution like El Museo del Barrio, that I think is related to this question. Corey asks, who are some of the artists you're thinking about or wanting to see what work they make in response to our two ongoing crises? I'll go first here because it gives me an opportunity to plug a show from two weeks ago. One of the artists I, I thought about right away a couple of weeks ago was Dred Scott, and I was ecstatic that he was able and willing to come on the show at very short notice. Like, this is a good question, right? Like, I like this question a lot. But it's hard to assign a topic to an artist and say, I hope they do it. Whereas, you know, Dred Scott's been making work about police presence in black communities and police violence for 23 years. I'm not good at math. But one thing I thought of, you mentioned Instagram earlier. One of the things I thought of while, while looking through Instagram last week was that uh, lots of artists are looking through all the same Instagram pictures I am, and they're seeing a whole lot of plywood board. And I think we're about to see a whole lot of art using plywood and a whole lot of artists thinking about, you know, pulling out their books of, of Katie Nolan's work. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in a way, when I think about trying to answer this question, it's less the artists I want to see respond to this moment and more just like, appreciating that many of the artists whose work I love and love following are already making work about what it means to be black, about black life in America. And so it's it's all of this moment, even if it's not addressing this moment directly, you know? So like Colleen Smith, Tamashi Jackson, Jatovia Gary, Trent Doyle Hancock. I mean, I don't know. These are all people whose work 
I just want to see what they make next, whether or not it's about the specific moment. And and to pick up with where we, you know, what we talked about a while ago, I'm curious to see how and if white artists search for and find ways in in their own work. That is a question I've sort of thought about for a long time. I feel like I've been thinking about it ever since Claudia Rankin's show at the Kitchen, the Racial Imaginary Institute show about whiteness. So it's really been on my mind for a while. And I guess my question that I'm always sort of thinking about is, how can white artists make work about whiteness and sort of deconstruct that and the way that they benefit from white privilege without then also recentering whiteness in a way that's harmful or reinforces white supremacy? And this is something that I don't have a great answer to, but it is something I think about very often. And because Corey asked about the two crises, I want to address the pandemic for a quick second. I do have an answer for this one. I'm really curious to see what Annika E does at the Tate for her Turbine Hall, you know, installation or project or whatever they call it, because hello, sweet spot. Uh, Ryan asks, within the context of current events, what is the future of galleries and I'm assuming he means commercial galleries and dealerships, and what functions should they serve? Well, in terms of what functions should they serve, I mean, the function of galleries, commercial galleries, is to show and sell art. I don't think that's changed, and I, and I don't know that that should change in the sense that artists do need to sell their work to live, so I'm not sure what we would do without galleries. Like, artists need galleries. But their role in the current moment is a good question, and it's, it's definitely their threat. I mean, so many galleries were already in these very precarious positions, at least in places like New York, where rents are really high. And I think there was already this question of, does this model even work anymore, given that they're spending all this money to go to art fairs and foot traffic is really like, you know, it's a privilege. It's great that we get to go in and just see art for free. But like, that's not really why they're there, <laughs> actually, like you said, selling and then showing art. And now with their physical spaces closed, it often just feels like a lot of noise. But I do think the function of galleries, I think, does need to be to support artists. And I don't know that that, that, that has changed. It's maybe just that they need to figure out how best to do that right now. Well, I think someone could do. I'm not, I'm not very good on the commercial art world. But I am interested in how you know the last few years have been a real pressure point for small and medium-sized galleries. And that that's a real crisis for artists. And that's not just a problem for artists, but one of the useful roles the market serves is to keep in currency, carefully chosen word, artists who should be reconsidered and whose place in art history should be revised. So, for example, because artists such as Clifford Still in Hilmoff Clint mostly but not entirely existed outside the art market by their own determination— that has definitely had an impact on research, study, and availability, uh, visual availability of, of their work. Galleries get some credit for making sure, for example, that Norman Lewis didn't continue to be skipped over. You know, there are galleries whose good work enabled Ruth Fine to come in and do one of the best retrospectives of recent years, for example. That that work continued to circulate in the market was important. So one of the problems with the crisis of the, of the mid-sized gallery is that. Yeah, no, I mean, in some ways it almost feels like also what I was thinking about when you were talking is like it's almost hard to even generalize about all galleries in some way because the term actually contains so many types of spaces. So many types of businesses and spaces. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, just, you know, I think about in New York alone, there's artists who run storefronts, you know, or window galleries who are just 
they're building on a community and they're showing work and they're barely selling anything, if at all. And then you have, you know, mid-sized galleries that have been around for a long time. And then you have places like at the top, like Werner and Gagosian. So it's all and Hauser and Worth. I mean, it's just the ecosystem is quite varied. In my terminology, I try to differentiate between galleries and dealerships. That's an interesting distinction. I mean, Gagosian operates much more like a Chevrolet dealer or, or, or an auto mall than an art gallery. I feel like there have been some good, despite my sort of skepticism and fatigue, there have been some good online shows and we're not seeing art other ways. So I think the galleries can do that, right? I mean, who was it? It was Gallery Long and PPOW teamed up to do an online show of Anna Mendieta and Carolee Schneeman. And it wasn't groundbreaking, but it was really well done. It was interesting. It was a great pairing. So I think that, you know, there can be ways for galleries to be still sharing work in this moment and, and sort of filling a void because we can't go see art. But the sort of rush to just replicate all the conditions of offline online is just like totally depressing to me. Yes, which is in, in, in relief to that point. Um, I'll pivot to our final question, which is where are you most looking forward to going or seeing art when the pandemic allows it? This is from Janet. So as a critic, I don't spend as much time as I would like with permanent collections. I see a lot of temporary exhibitions because I'm that's sort of my job. So in a way, what I'm most looking forward to depends on what what shows are on view when places reopen. <laughs> not to like cop out from the question, but, you know, so like I did not get to see anything that was up at the Whitney before they closed. And I really want to see those shows. So I'm hoping that they will reopen with them. And yeah, I mean, so yeah, so for me, I mean, I'm excited to go to museums and see these shows that have been on the schedule for this year that will hopefully still be happening. Like I, you know, I hope the Lynn Hirschman Leeson's show still happens at the new museum. I hope the Reno Grady's show happens at the Brooklyn Museum. I mean, these are some of the big things that I'm really looking forward to. You know, at some point, it'll be nice to go back to the Met and just wander around for sure. It's definitely a long way away. And in a way, I mean, if I'm being realistic, the places I'm going to go back to first are galleries because it's much easier for the gallery to open their space for me, one person, and that is safe if I can get there. So more realistically, I'm going to be going to galleries before I'm going to museums. And so in that sense, there's not like a specific show I'm looking forward to. But, you know, it'll be nice to go back to some of these spaces and just be communing with art again in person. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel that way, too. I mean, I feel like I look forward to seeing painterliness on canvas or board, seeing seeing brush strokes as three dimensional things rather than blown up on one of my screens, right? <laughs> I look forward to those places and galleries where a curator has hung four objects on four walls, hoping that a visitor will notice their relationship with each other and then finding them and then maybe dropping them a note afterward, thanking them for it. We'll deny ever having said this. But I look forward to seeing children and young people in front of art and their responses to it, which is usually, you know, I'm a curmudgeon and I can be a very horrible person in that moment. But at the same time, I can, you know, I look forward to the humanity of that moment of discovery and being present when it happens. Like in terms of moments of discovery, I mean, what I love about going to art spaces is my own moments of discovery. I mean, just... Which is a lot harder to have digitally, I gotta say. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's exactly my point. Like, you know, let's say it's a painting or it's like, maybe even it's like a weird object that's constructed in a multimedia piece. 
I am the person who walks all the way around the thing to see like where the parts fit together and what's on the side of the canvas if it's a painting. Like, so those kinds of things you can't do online. So that's the stuff I'm really looking forward to. You just get such a different feel for objects. Walking all the way around a sculpture experiencing a three-dimensional object in 360 degrees, which you just can't do on a, on a, I mean, like I've had a, I, I found that maybe the heart, like sculpture in JPEG is, you know, no disrespect intended to the photographers who have to try to make that work. Right. I mean, I get how hard that is. You know, the Met has a whole Instagram feed about this, which is great. I gotta say Met imaging, I think is, is its handle. We'll have it. We'll have a link on, on manpodcast.com. But you've got to walk all around stuff. And I do miss that. You know, I also really miss the sense of scale. Like one thing you don't get online at all. Like you don't know how big things are. You don't know how your body relates to them. And that is such an important part of how art works on you. So I can't wait to just like be in the presence of something. Yes, that's a, that's a very good. I, I wish I'd thought of that. I mean, I was at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when we were all reaching for comfort I have a lot of Matisse books, and so I reread one I hadn't read in 20-something years, which was kind of funny because it was mostly black and white images <laughs> from a prior era. And, and you know, there in the caption line of, of the paintings was their measurements. You know, the further into the pandemic we got and the further without my having looked at art we got, the harder time I had applying those measurements to physical reality. <laughs> No one has any idea how big anything is anymore. That's probably actually, now that you mention it, probably the biggest thing I look forward to is just being around right-sized, true-sized art. There there are definitely specific spaces in America I look forward to being back in. I think the museum in America, that the, the two museums in America that probably install their collection best are Cleveland and Toledo. Yale, I love looking at art in the Yale University Art Gallery and at the Yale Center for British Art. They're such completely different spaces and have completely different collections, but everything always looks great there. I just generally kind of avoid favorites questions and just in terms of, I don't know, I have trouble picking. But you know, one thing I really look forward to one day, and who knows when this will happen for me, I mean, one of the things I love to do is is going to museums I haven't been to. I mean, wandering through the permanent collections of a museum you've never visited well, especially sometimes a really obscure one, like that experience, that I love. And that requires traveling. That's, you know, I take a trip and they have a museum. So I go there and that's something that I am excited to do again one day. Just finding the weird gems in in some institutions, permanent collection is like my favorite thing. Yeah. And I guess my, the last part of my answer would be that given everything else we've been discussing today, the, the twin crises in America and, and indeed the world, I suspect because university art museums are more nimble and more flexible and less scheduled and are built around the campuses and students and investigation in a different way. I think they're probably going to be the ones that address what's going on now first. And I'm really interested to see how that happens because I bet it's going to happen in ways that we didn't predict half an hour ago. <laughs> I mean, I, there are going to be lots of people with lots of good ideas, and I'm looking forward to seeing how they how they get onto walls. And I will say, too, I mean, I'll be curious to see, I mean, we talked about, the, you know, there was a question about the a Black Lives Matter exhibition. I'm also curious to see how museums address, if, if at all, the pandemic. I mean, I, you know, health and sickness are 
really interesting topics and ones that aren't actually covered that much often in, in art context. Or the, I mean, artists, there are artists making work about this, but they have less attention, I think, than some more seemingly political issues, even though actually health and ability and sickness are very much political issues, but I think they're not cast as such. So, I mean, yeah, I'm just curious to see how museums grapple with, if at all, the pandemic as well. I think one of the difficulties museums have in addressing issues of sickness and health is museums that rely on on gate revenue for a significant portion of their revenue don't want to do shows that aren't happy. All this does point to how museums whose revenue models are dependent on getting, you know, 15 or 25 percent of their revenue from admissions fees. I mean, those are the museums that have had the hardest time during the pandemic. And the flaw in their model has really been exposed. And those are also going to be the museums that have the hardest time figuring out how to represent or address or consider or whatever the pandemic within their spaces and their investigations. Probably should have talked about that more earlier, but yeah. You know, the sort of most recent iteration of this that comes to mind is that show Art Aids America. And I I would be curious, I don't know, I'd be curious to know what attendance figures were like for a show like that. I mean, it was a show about the AIDS crisis. To me, one of the most important lessons of the pandemic for institutions should be, I don't know that it will be, look at your revenue models and realize that if they're really dependent on earned revenue from admissions especially, that you need to think about that, that you need to, that you need to realize what a vulnerability that is. Art museums are charities, and when they rely on the people to whom they provide services in C3 Speak for, say, 25% of their revenue, that's, in circumstances such as this, a real vulnerability. For me, I just keep coming back to the question of, you know, museum workers. And, you know, there's so much momentum that was building before the pandemic for unions and museums and organizing staff and workers, part-time workers as well. And so, you know, that that is, in some ways, to me, the question is not just like the the audience revenue, but just where you allocate your funds. Yeah. What are your priorities? Who are you spending money on? Why? You know, are you terminating the contracts of a bunch of contract workers while your director is making a ton of money? I mean, I don't know. Uh, It's just the inequalities within the system itself are, they were already glaring, but I think at a time when people are losing their work and their jobs left and right, and there's so much instability in the economy, it's really glaring. Jillian Steinhauer, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.